0: Well, we're coming now to the end of this section in the book of Mark. We've been working through uh, a section where Jesus has this confrontation with the Pharisees over the issue of marriage. And so we've spent the last three weeks talking about marriage, talking about what it is, how God designed it, what is the intention of marriage, and now we're going to hit home plate. We're going to finish this thing this morning... And we're going to tackle now what will be the, I believe, most difficult subject of the whole series. Uh, The subject that we're going to attempt to uh, unpack this morning is the subject of divorce and remarriage. And to answer the questions, when is divorce permissible? When is remarriage permissible? What are the scriptural principles that undergird our stance on these issues? Uh, This won't be necessarily the most inspiring sermon that you've ever heard. This might feel maybe a little bit more like a lecture at a seminary or something. But the point of this, again, is to let God speak to us. If you're a Christian here this morning, your desire is to know God's will for your life in repentance and submit yourself to it. And so this is going to be very helpful for us to understand how we as Christians should think about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. It's a difficult uh, subject for a number of reasons. Let me delineate some of the reasons why I I, I think it's going to be difficult. Number one is this. In order to come to a full biblical understanding of this topic, you have to look at all the different passages that are relevant to the issue. Uh, In the New Testament, there's Mark 10, the passage that we're going to be in this morning. There's also Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Luke 16, and 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, you could even throw in Romans 7 at our passages that talk about what marriage is, what divorce is, when it should happen, when it should not happen, and what remarriage is, and all those issues. To get a full picture, you've got to look at all of them and put them together to grasp the mind of God on this matter. Secondly, it's difficult because there's balance, there's nuance. Uh, We would never want to suggest that when there are grounds for divorce, that means that divorce is the right and necessary thing to do, that it is necessarily wise to go ahead and pursue it. We're talking about grounds and permission, so we want to be careful with the way we speak of these things. Another reason it's difficult is that when we're going to unpack the principles that are there in Scripture, we're going to find that there are two biblical principles Uh, uh, issues that make divorce permissible Uh, one is sexual immorality and the other is abandonment by an unbelieving spouse now as soon as that's unpacked questions begin to arise well what constitutes sexual immorality a lustful thought a lingering look and what constitutes abandonment What if the guy is out all day gambling and doing drugs and spends the night on the couch when he comes home but has no interest in the marriage? Does that constitute an abandonment? These are sticky issues, difficult to unpack, and let me just say up front, I can't, possibly address every situation that we've ever encountered in our lives. And so we're going to have to work through principles, and then if there are some of you that are really wrestling through some of how this applies to your own life situation, that's time for some more one-on-one or meeting with the elders and talking through how these particular principles apply to your situation. Here's another reason why this is a difficult topic is because it's very, potentially, very emotional. Um, A lot of us have been through things like this. Some of us are in hard marriages. Some of us have been divorced. Some of us have been remarried. And so we want to address this very biblically, but we don't want to do it in a condemning way that just... Casts everyone who's ever gone through any really difficult situation like this as some sort of second-rate Christian, particularly when there's repentance and faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be careful with how we present these issues. And lastly, I already mentioned this, the difficulty of every unique individual and every unique marriage and every unique situation. And so I That after a sermon like this, there's going to be people who say, well, what about this situation where he did this and she did that and then this happened and then this happened after that? What do you think about that? Well, again, there's as many different situations as there are people. And so our commitment, as always, is to let the text talk. Let's let the scriptures speak to do this. We're going to be in Mark, but we're going to also be in Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. Those will be the main ones. We must listen to the scriptures. We must uh, be willing to put ourselves under their authority and apply them to our lives. Let me just say from the outset, if you want to do more study, I am indebted to J. Adams' book, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage in the Bible. It's not a long one and it's packed with uh, exegesis of the relevant text. If you want to do more study, Kevin DeYoung also has a blog article titled A Sermon on Divorce and Remarriage, which I found helpful, that you can take a look at those. You could ask me for them. I could send them over to you. Let's look at Mark 10. Let's read our text, our full text again, and our focus will be on the last two sec- or verses in the section. Verse 1 of chapter 10 What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And that's what we looked at last week. We studied the idea of the providence of God in uniting a couple together, and then God's plan for permanence in marriage. Let not man separate. Now we come to verse 10, where this issue is so heavy to the disciples. It says, they go in the house, and the disciples asked him again about this matter. It's like, hey, we've got to talk a little bit more about this. Could it possibly be true that you're saying there are no grounds at all for divorce, that we should never consider separation? Verse 11, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery so what he's saying is is that not only is there the sin of divorce when divorce happens but there's also adultery for the ones that remarry. Now we're going to unpack this because there are other passages that give us more clarity on when it is permissible to divorce and when it is permissible then also to remarry, but we're going to start with a quick review of one of the big points of the last several weeks. So here's Seven principles that we're going to work through one by one. And our first principle is this. You'll remember from last week what we talked about. Number one, marriage is meant to be a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. And that we got from the previous verses where in verse 6, Jesus says, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. That is the design. That is what a marriage is built upon. There cannot be a marriage that is not consisting of a male and a female. That is not marriage. Whatever it is, it's not a biblical marriage. And therefore verse 7 a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh there is a leaving of the spouse to connect with the the other in marriage to become one couple to become one flesh and then they are not one, two people but one it says and then in verse 9 that God has joined them together and therefore it would be wrong for man to separate them and so God is presenting the picture here in his word that marriage, by design, is male and female for life. Now, if you, one of the members of the couple dies, then remarriage is, uh, uh, is okay. This is what Paul says in Romans 7. But lifelong marriage is God's design. Permanence in marriage. In fact, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, God says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Remember, he did not invent it. It was not his idea. Divorce was invented by the wickedness of humanity when they were breaking out of the design that God gave to his people. God intended that marriage be one man, one woman, in a covenant, one flesh relationship for life. And no one is supposed to separate that. So the first principle is the intention of a lifelong permanent covenant relationship between a man And a woman. Now, second principle is this. Every divorce is a result of sin, but not every divorce is sinful. You need to unpack what this means here. There's a difference. Every divorce is a result of sin, but it is not sinful in every case for a divorce to be pursued. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8 describes how God issued a certificate of divorce to faithless and adulterous Israel. It says, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Now, was there sin involved that resulted in divorce? Absolutely. Was it God's sin? Absolutely not. It was the sin of Israel. Israel, over the span of centuries, had been so involved in spiritual faithlessness that God, at the end, or by the time, it was around 600 B.C., when Jeremiah was written, all those years God put up with the faithlessness of Israel and it finally got to the point where God said, I am giving you a certificate of divorce. Now if we're going to follow God's example here, I want you to notice the timeline. The covenant with Moses was made almost a thousand years prior to the certificate of the divorce given. In other words, God was incredibly patient, long-suffering, kind, and did not divorce them at the golden calf incident, did not divorce them at Korah's rebellion, did not divorce them when they complained in the wilderness, did not divorce them when they failed to complete the conquest, did not divorce them when they were morally failing under the rule of the judges, did not divorce them when they rejected his authority and they wanted a human king. It wasn't until their their sin was so horribly grotesque that finally God issued a certificate of divorce, and he was not wrong to do so. Here's a second biblical reason why not every single divorce in every single scenario is sinful. And remember, we're trying to be biblical here, not just follow the traditions of man. Not every divorce is biblical. You learn that from Joseph's example. If you remember what happened, you go back to the Christmas story, and you hear about Joseph and Mary. And Joseph gets the message that his uh, soon to be wife whom he 's engaged to, an engagement back in those days involved making a covenant. It was very similar to marriage. If you were engaged in the first century as a Jew, it was as if you were married, and for that engagement to be cut off, you actually needed to get a divorce in Matthew chapter one, verse nineteen. It says, because Joseph was a righteous man, remember he had just found out his his uh, fiance Mary is pregnant it says because joseph was a righteous man he had in mind to divorce her quietly the scriptures link his righteousness as a worshiper of god with his desire to move forward with this divorce, because, as far as he knew, she had committed the sin of adultery, and he thought the best thing for him in that situation was to divorce her quietly, and nowhere does Scripture condemn him for doing that. In fact, it upholds his own righteousness. If it were always wrong, in every scenario, no matter what, to get a divorce... Joseph would have been in the wrong there, but Scripture gives us no evidence. In fact, the Scripture itself declares he is a righteous man, and his righteousness is behind his motivation to divorce her quietly. So the second principle here is every divorce is a result of sin, but not every divorce is sinful. And we get that from God's example and Joseph's example. Here's principle number three. And here's where we get to the first grounds for divorce. Divorce is permitted but not required on the ground of sexual immorality. It is permitted but not required on the ground of sexual immorality. If you remember, you go back to the first week where we talked about how the Pharisees of the time would have thought about marriage. And there were two main thoughts in the Jewish way of thinking that was pervasive. You had on one side the school of Hillel, Rabbi Hillel taught that you could essentially get a divorce for whatever you wanted. If your spouse burnt the toast, it says, uh, the old Mishnah writings of the Jewish tradition. If your wife did something to your meal you didn't like, you could send her away. You could divorce her for even that. That was the school of Hillel, and that's what the Pharisees were upholding. That's what they thought was right. But the school of Shammai, Rabbi Shammai, taught that that was not the case that there was a more conservative approach to marriage, that the only grounds for divorce was sexual immorality, that one of the spouses was guilty of committing sexual immorality. Now to see this, what Jesus says about this is in Matthew chapter 19. I invite you to turn there. And in Matthew chapter 19, it is the same event as Mark 10. So Mark 10 is an account, but as Mark usually is, he is not as much in detail about everything that happened. He is always, of course, inerrantly telling the truth. But what's often the case with the gospels is that they'll look at things from different angles and often one gospel writer will include more detail. And that's what's happening with Matthew. That's why Matthew's 28 chapters and Mark is 16. Matthew likes to include more detail. And so we find in the same event, Matthew includes more of what Jesus said. This interchange happens between Jesus and the Pharisees, and look at verse 9 of chapter 19. It says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. In other words, Jesus here sides with the school of Shammai. He is saying that what is true is that there is a permission for divorce. It is not a requirement for divorce, but divorce is permissible if there are cases of sexual immorality. It's essentially Jesus is saying divorce is wrong, remarriage is adultery, unless it is occasioned by sexual immorality, unfaithfulness in Marriage. It is permitted, divorce is permitted, but not required on those grounds. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of this that that can be sometimes hard to determine what exactly constitutes sexual immorality. So someone looked too long at a place they should not have looked, uh, a conversation that went too long, does that constitute adultery? What is, how are we to think of this? Is it any thought? Is it any uh, feeling in the heart? Is that the kind of immorality that Jesus is speaking of? And I think The best way to consider this is to understand that Jesus is a first century Jew. It would have been referring to the Pentateuch, the Old Testament. He saw the scriptures as authoritative, didn't he? And he would have got his definition from the Word of God. Namely, he would have gotten his definition of sexual immorality from Leviticus. And if you've read Leviticus, you know there's entire sections devoted to delineating what exactly sexual immorality is. In the Holiness Code, in chapters particularly, chapters 18 and 20, are Moses giving the commands, God through Moses giving the commands to Israel, describing what are the sexual aberrations that are sinful and should be avoided for the people of God. And when you look at Leviticus 18, verses 20 to 24, and Leviticus 20, verses 10 to 21, you get a list. Let me read them off to you. And these are the things that constitute uh, sexual immorality. The Greek word, by the way, that Jesus is ewing is pornea. You can think of some English words that come from that. Sexual immorality. What is pornea? What is that? According to Leviticus, it would include these four things. It's adultery, homosexual sex, bestiality, and incest. If you're going to put this list together. Sexual immorality consists of those four things, and if those four things happen in a marriage, any of those four things, then it is permissible for one party to pursue divorce. Divorce. Let me remind you, permission does not equal a must, does not equal a should. It may not be the right thing because repentance and reconciliation are best. Why? Because God's design is for life. You follow? So that is principle number three, that If there is sexual immorality, divorce is permissible but not required. Here's principle number four, and I'm going to invite you now to turn over to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is now dealing with principles for marriage, and he addresses different kinds of people. He addresses singles, he addresses married, he addresses those who are married to unbelievers. If you start in verse 10, you see that verse 10 and 11, and we're going to get back and look at that more in detail. He starts by saying, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, and that has confused people who are reading that and say, what do you mean, not I, but the Lord? And then in the verse 12, he says, I, not the Lord. What he means by that is when he's saying, not I, but the Lord, he's referring back to something Jesus explicitly taught in the Gospels. When he's saying, I, not the Lord, he's referring to a new teaching that he is an apostle with the authority of God is now teaching. It's something that Jesus did not teach. It does not mean it's any less authoritative. So get that out of your mind. When he says, I, not the Lord, it is still the authority of God of the apostles speaking. And I want to skip now to verse 12, real briefly, okay? Verse 12, where he says, to the rest, because in that section, he begins to talk to those who are married to unbelievers. So in the Corinthian church, he, he first is talking to uh, married people who have uh, christ at the center of their marriage, and he gives them what they need to hear. We'll talk about that in a second. Then he moves on to that hard situation of the believer who's married to an unbeliever. Well, what do you do about that? It says, To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, And he consents to live with her. She should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Pause right here. Here's the fourth principle. Your spouse's unbelief is not grounds for divorce. Your spouse's unbelief is not grounds for divorce. Rather, Paul reshapes the thinking of the Christian in that situation and invites them to start thinking of their role in that marriage almost more like a missionary, to begin praying and working for the salvation of their spouse and the salvation of their Children, because, as Paul makes the argument, it could be that the unbelieving husband is made holy by his wife or the unbelieving wife is made holy by her husband. In other words, the Christian's presence in the home reduces the decline, the moral decay of the marriage and even potentially enables them to raise their children not as pagans but as believers. And so the unbelieving spouse should be stuck to it should be should be married to the believer should commit to that marriage work on that marriage unequally yoked marriages are often although not always used by God to bring the spouse and the children to saving faith so stick with the unbelieving spouse that's Paul's argument remember last week your marriage is no accident God is sovereign Providence is God's rule over your life. And in his providence, there is included your marriage, even as difficult as it might be. And so principle number four is your spouse's unbelief is not grounds for divorce. Here's principle number five. Principle number five is a Christian must get a divorce if an unbelieving spouse is insisting upon it. A Christian must get a divorce if an unbelieving spouse is insisting upon it. And I want to point you to the exegesis that proves that this is what the Bible teaches. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. I want to point out, you find that word in Verse 15, the word separate, you see that? That word is used up in verse 10 where Paul says the wife should not separate from her husband, but look at verse 11, but if she does, she should remain unmarried, and I'm just going to point that out to show that the separation that Paul is talking about is talking about divorce, a separation that results in one being unmarried. So if the unbelieving partner separates or gets a divorce or pursues a divorce is what he's getting at there, it says, let it be so. Let me tell you a little bit about the Greek that's going on right there. Let it be so, in our English translation is a phrase, in the Greek, it's one word. In fact, it's the same word as the previous word separates, in other words, Let me do a little nerdy Greek for you right here. Um, The Greek word for separate is the word karydzo. The word for let it be so is also karydzo, except it's a different form. It is a passive imperative. Passive, meaning that it's not something you do, it's something that is happening to you. Imperative, though, means command. In other words, if you were to uh, just try to Uh, uh, interpret this literally as literally as possible it would read something like this follow along with me verse 15 but if the unbelieving partner separates be separated that's what it actually the greek is saying let it happen be separated let the divorce happen that is what is being communicated here it is not an option. It is a command. It is in the imperative form, and then Paul begins to give reasons for this. In verse fifteen, uh, he says, "In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved." In other words, Paul saying, "I don't want you to be enslaved to a marriage." The marriage covenant that your spouse doesn't want anything to do with. Your spouse is trying to get out of it. Your spouse is trying to leave. And you're sitting here holding on to a covenant promise that you cannot possibly keep. Paul says that would be like enslavement. And then he goes on to say, God has called you to peace. God has called you to peace. In other words, there's two options with a a, a believer with an unbelieving spouse who wants to separate. If he's separated, the believer should either, if this one wants to be reconciled, they should seek reconciliation. But if he or she does not want reconciliation, the believing spouse should let the unbeliever go. Why? Because God has called them to peace. God wants closure. God doesn't want loose ends dangling around. With There's uncertainty. There's some in-between. Are we married? Are we not? Jay Adams, in his book I mentioned earlier, uh, paints the picture why this is so important. He says, too often Christians on bad advice have settled for the in-between. Let me describe it. Believing wrongly that she must remain married to her unbelieving husband no matter what, a Christian woman holds on even when her husband wants to end their marriage. He then may begin running around with other women if he hasn't been doing so already, and at any length may even desert her. Yet, urged on by bad counsel, she won't agree to a divorce. He may stay away from home for six-month periods at a time, occasionally showing up for a week or so. This, of course, upsets the kids in the life of the home. Hopes are aroused and then shattered. His wife may get pregnant. If married, she must agree to sex if he seeks it. And so it goes on and on, and she is always hoping against hope, and yet there is no evidence at all of a desire on his part to consent to a marriage, and so she hangs on for life or for years or even for life. There's no peace in that. And the point that Paul's getting at is God has called you to peace. And so if there's an unbeliever who wants to leave, an unbeliever who wants to be separated, what it says there is be separated. Let it be so. Let it happen. Let him go. MacArthur makes the same point where he says, many Christians have tried to keep a marriage together even when the spouse was unbelieving and wanted a divorce. But that, of course, is against God's will. Let him leave It's not a permission, but a command. Now, I would say that you wouldn't want to do this rashly. You wouldn't want to do this without the help and oversight of elders and other Christians in your life. But when there's an unbelieving spouse that is insisting on getting out of the marriage, the Christian is under obligation to let that person go. I know a woman who was married to a youth pastor, and when they first got married, he had all the signs of being a believer, was serving the church, and then her husband left the faith, left the church, left the marriage, and essentially fell off the face of the planet and couldn't. no one could get a hold of him. He was not willing to be in the marriage, that was clear. He didn't want to be anywhere near. He moved out of state and no one could get a hold of him. Um, Clearly, he was abandoning his wife. What was the bride supposed to do in that situation? Is she supposed to hang on and remain married and hold to a covenant promise that she can't possibly keep? Is she supposed to try to do all these things? I think Paul would say, no, if the unbelieving partner wants to separate, let it be so. Why? Because God does not want you to be enslaved. He's called you to peace. I don't think it's merely permissible that she get a divorce. I think she must get a divorce based on the text of Scripture here. Additionally, this is why separation without divorce is not God's solution. God's solution is not some halfway marriage where on paper you have all your covenant promises, but in real life you're living as if they don't exist. The biblical solutions are reconcile with your unbelieving spouse if they're willing, but if they're not willing, is to let them leave. I don't say this lightly. I think this is very significant. If you're in a situation like this, you need to be talking to someone about how you would work through that process. Here's the sixth principle. Principle number six: If the divorce was not permissible, marriage was not permissible. And this is where you go back to our section in Mark, in verse ten and eleven, where he says, "And in the house, the disciples asked him about eleven verse or, or, about this matter, verse 11. And he said to them, "Whoever divorces his wife and marries another, and I would think that this is what this is the same." event is Matthew 19 so he's talking about divorces and remarriages that don't have any biblical grounds okay he's talking about divorces and remarriages that don't have sexual immorality or abandonment as their grounds he says there is adultery that happens as a result so if the divorce is not biblically grounded if the grounds for divorce are not there biblically speaking then remarriage is not permissible either and this is, again, if you want to you know, keep a finger in Mark and, and one in 1 Corinthians 10, or sorry, verse, or chapter 7, verse 10, Paul says, To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. He's referring back to Matthew 19 and Mark 10. He says, The wife should not separate from her husband. Okay, so The wife should not leave. The wife should not divorce. But if she does she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. In other words, if you went through and you got a divorce, and your spouse is still unmarried and you're unmarried, you should not get remarried because the goal would be to reconcile. Do you see that in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 7? Uh, You should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. In other words, it's wrong to get the divorce in the first place, But then if you get the divorce, Paul warns, hey, don't then go ahead and get remarried because it was wrong to get divorced in the first place. Now remarriage is going to be adulterous. And so don't get remarried. So if the divorce was not permissible, remarriage is not permissible. Now here's principle number seven. If the divorce is permissible on the grounds of sexual immorality or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, then remarriage is permissible. If the divorce was permissible, remarriage also is permissible. Remember, in Matthew 19, he uses that phrase. It's called the exception clause. He says, except for sexual immorality. That is the qualifier. He's saying that divorce and remarriage are wrong unless there was sexual immorality. What that means is, is if there was sexual immorality, if there was legitimate grounds, then the divorce and the remarriage are not sin. The divorce is not sinful, and the remarriage, therefore, is not adultery. I want you to go back. We're back in First Corinthians 7 now. We're going back and forth. Hopefully, you're there, or you got a finger there. I want to point this out here. I want to point out the end of the chapter, toward the end. Look at verse 39. Verse 39. First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. It says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free. Notice that word free. It came up previously when we were talking about this. Freedom, the idea of freedom, the idea of not being enslaved to keep covenant promises that you can't possibly keep. If her husband dies, she is free. To be married to whom she wishes, yet only in the Lord. In other words, she can only marry a believer if her husband dies. Now go back to chapter 7, same chapter, and let's look now at verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so, in such cases the brother or sister is not enslaved we talked about freedom in the, pre, the other one that we just looked at. Here, Paul is talking about there should be no enslavement. He's talking about there should be, to put it positively, a sense of freedom. A sense of freedom. In other words, what this teaches is that when the unbelieving partner separates, there is a freedom that the believing spouse now enjoys, and that freedom includes being able to remarry. So where there is permission to get a divorce based on the biblical grounds of sexual immorality or the abandonment of an unbelieving spouse, then remarriage is also permissible. You followed all this? This is a lot. Now we're going to cap it off with six principles, six applications that are going to be bullets to help us understand how this fits into our lives. Number one, If you're married, stay married. Married couples, I want to ask you this. Are you cultivating your marriage or just trying to survive? Just trying to make it by. Guard your marriage. Did you notice how complicated the last seven principles were? Isn't it true that sin and divorce complicates things? It does. The best way is to be married and stay married and work on your marriage and put Christ in the center. And if you're on the verge of divorce and if things are really hard or you're in a rut and you can't get out of it, get counseling and care. Seek it out. It's available here and we'd love to offer it to you. Secondly, if you are married to an unbelieving spouse who is committed to the marriage, stay. Be a model wife or a model husband. Pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. Pray like crazy. Teach your children the gospel. Be committed to a church where you can receive the help you need. Third, if you are divorced on biblical grounds, your unbelieving spouse abandoned you or was guilty of sexual immorality and you pursued a divorce, our hope is that you would find Grace Rancher to be a place where you can receive grace upon grace. Divorce is an incredibly painful and difficult experience, and we don't want to pile on the pain or treat you like some second-rate citizen in the kingdom of God. We want you to feel the family dynamic of a church. We want you to know that all divorce is, in fact, a result of sin, but sometimes, in some cases, there is permission without God's displeasure to get a divorce. Number four. If you are divorced without biblical grounds, or you're acting like you're divorced, you're separated, I want to ask you, do you hear from God's word this morning? God wants your marriage to be reconciled to your former spouse. If you've not been remarried, don't be remarried. If your marriage looks like something that died, remember, so did Jesus when he was dangling on that cross. And when Jesus was dying on the cross, it was the beginning of something glorious. Because in that moment, he was paying for the sins of all his people. He suffered and died, bearing the wrath of the sins that we've committed. He was put into the tomb. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He conquered sin, conquered Satan, conquered death, conquered hell. He's alive right now. He can fix you. He can fix your heart. He can fix your marriage. And anyone who has doubts that he can, there are many of us here who are living proof that Jesus saves and Jesus heals, and Jesus can restore marriages, and if you go to Jesus and get the resources that he has for you, you can be in a position where your marriage is now an oasis instead of a desert. That is available to you. I would urge you to think through God's design for marriage and to pursue repentance and remarriage with your spouse if you were, principle number five, or point number five, I should say, if you were sinfully divorced and remarried, it may be that you've already dealt with this sin. And if that's the case, again, I don't want to tear off a scab off a wound that's already been dealt with. I want you to rejoice in the grace of God that he has forgiven a sinner like you. And it might be that maybe you didn't really know it was all that much a sin. Maybe you're... Hearing all this for the first time and you didn't realize the will of God in this matter? But now you've been remarried. Should you get out of that marriage and go try to reconcile? No. Stay where you are and build from there a marriage built on the gospel on the principles that God has given you, and you might say in a prayer of confession and repentance something along the lines of, Lord, I'm sorry. I was ignorant of your word. I was ignorant of your will. I was living for myself. I have dishonored my Savior. I am grieved over my own sin. Have mercy on me. And guess what? The mercy of Christ flows abundantly to all those who are humbled before him. So if you've never dealt with it, Confess it and find grace. If you have dealt with it, praise the Lord. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The blood of Christ has washed you clean. Believe that. Lastly, if you do have an unbelieving spouse who wants to leave, let it be so. Don't do it alone. Get your brothers and your sisters around you. Get a group of people praying. Get your elders involved. But this is one of the hardest things that might need to happen, but God has called you to peace. Don't make rash decisions. I'm sure there's been reconciliation attempts, but if at the end of the day that there's a spouse that does not love the Lord and does not submit to his word and is not interested in keeping the marriage, you can grieve, set your hope in God, And let him go, or let her go. Again, don't do it alone. In all this, church, there is grace for the humble. Christ lived and died and rose for sinners. We take refuge in his saving grace. All of us have a past, and all of us need to be humbled before the living word of God, piercing us and convicting us. And let us all recognize that before the cross, we're all on equal playing field, We're all sinners in need of a great Savior. And let's praise the Lord that though marriage is hard and divorce is hard and life in this fallen world is hard, there's mercy and grace in Christ for our time of need. Cast yourself at his feet and receive his grace. Let's pray. So Lord, I pray that this time together looking at your word and looking at these principles derived from your word would be fruitful. Pray that we would be more understanding of your will for us. Lord, I pray that we would each take the appropriate steps to respond to these things. To work on our marriages, to seek confession and repentance where necessary, to seek reconciliation where necessary, to seek your Mercy, where necessary, to seek help and counsel, where necessary. Lord, only you can apply these words to each individual. I pray that you pray that you would do that, and I also pray, Lord, that if there are lingering questions unanswered in people's minds, that they would find courage to bring it up and to talk about it. I pray that there would be no condemnation here; it would be free to be fully known by one another and that we'd be able to love one another despite all our failures. Lord, to you be the glory, and may this be used to strengthen our marriages and strengthen our families in Jesus' name.